0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Second Corinthians chapter four verses 16 through chapter five, verse five. Hear now the word of the Lord. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning. It's so good to be able to be up here Happy Easter, I'm grateful that you're here. I'm grateful for those of you joining online as well. One of the things that I've been looking forward to in terms of preaching this Easter is that we are in the middle of a series in 2 Corinthians. And so three weeks ago, we actually came to this passage and I said then that there was an unspoken rule that you don't preach on the resurrection that close to Easter. I said we'd come back to that passage. So if you recognize the passage as something we've read before and something I preached on, we're back. But particularly, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5, which I didn't speak to before. Recently, as Easter has been coming up, uh, I was talking with a child about Easter and about resurrection, and I asked the question that Ben actually brought up in the call to worship. As we're in conversation, I just said, hey, what do you think it means that if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, like really risen, like he's alive, he has a body, what do you think it means that if that didn't happen, we are of all people most to be pitied? Now, when I asked this child this, I didn't know what they would say because candidly, I'm not sure what I would say in short. But this child looked at me with this sober look almost immediately and said, Well, it's because we depend on it. Now, let me say this again. I asked this child, why do you think Paul said that if Jesus didn't actually rise from the grave that Christians are of most people to be pitied? The child's answer, well, because we depend on it. We depend on the resurrection. We, our lives, depend on the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, when I think about all of the words That I would have used if one of you were to ask me that simple question. It would have been a lot more than that. In fact, if I would have imagined a child asking me that question, I would have struggled, I think, with the answer because we are filled with so many words. And the simple answer was because we depend on it. Now, it's undeniable that Christianity rises and falls on what we're celebrating today. Christianity rises and falls on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not the idea that Jesus rose from the dead spiritually in some way, or that he's alive in the hearts of his followers. No, that he physically rose from the dead. That every cell in his body was done. There was no more heart pumping blood through his body. He was dead. He was decomposing. And then three days later, he came back to life in a new resurrected life. Everything rises and falls on that. We know that. But How often does that idea remain merely intellectual to you and to me? How often does it sit powerfully in our mind, but it seems miles away from our heart? It seems miles away from directing our daily lives. Well, in this passage, Paul is telling the Corinthians why he doesn't lose heart, even in the face of intense suffering that at any moment could lead to death. That's the situation here. And what Paul says in verse 16 is we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So I'm going to summarize the passage that we just heard with this. Paul is saying that he does not lose heart in affliction because he has set his heart on resurrection. Paul says, I do not lose heart in affliction because I've set my heart on resurrection. Now listen, our hearts do not do well with abstraction. Our minds love abstraction. Our hearts do not do well with abstraction. Our hearts are convinced by concreteness. And you know that this is true. In fact, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians hasn't left his suffering in the abstract realm. He's brought it to concreteness. In fact, we'll come later in this series to a whole half of a chapter where he outlines the specifics of the ways that he's been beaten, shipwrecked, stoned. He's going to line that out for us. But he's being very concrete. Think about Paul's body. Paul's physical body bore the marks of his suffering. He had scars all along his back from being lashed multiple times. It's possible That parts of his body, maybe even his face, were disfigured because of when he was stoned and left for dead. Certainly he was dead. But then he stood up and walked back in the city. And so Paul's suffering is not abstract. It's concrete. He bears it in his body. And still, he says, I do not lose heart. In verse 18, he says that the way in which he doesn't lose heart, he says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So what Paul's talking about here is the, the life of faith. He's saying the reason he doesn't lose hope is because of the life of faith. But let me, let me just remind you of what I said. I said, our hearts do not do well with abstract, but they love concreteness. So how is it not abstract to say that the way that Paul doesn't lose heart is by the things that are unseen. That sounds abstract, doesn't it? Hey, don't lose heart because look to the things that are unseen. But in fact, Paul's inviting us to something very concrete. You see, Paul is inviting us to see not less, but to see more. Paul's inviting us that we as Christians, with the eyes that I'm looking at you with right now, that I would see more than beautiful people in beautiful Sunday clothes, Easter clothes. But that I wouldn't see less than that, but I would see more. With the eyes of faith, I would see struggle, and I would see pain, and I would see sadness. And yes, I would see joy, and I would see hope, and I would see longing, but that I would see all of it. That I would see you and everything in your heart. That's what Paul's inviting us to see. He's inviting us to see not just with these eyes, but with the eyes of our hearts, as he calls it in Ephesians. So how do I see that in this passage? Look at this. In verse 16, Paul says, our outer self is wasting away. That's not abstract. His outer self is literally wasting away. And so is yours. And depending on our age or depending on our circumstances or our health, that's going to be more obvious to us than not. But we're going to be able to see with our eyes our outer selves wasting away. But Paul is saying, but that's not all I see, brothers and sisters. I don't only see my outer self wasting away. I see more than that. I see my inner self being renewed. But even more than that, he tells us what he sees in a metaphor in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. He uses this powerful picture of what he sees. So look with me in verses 1 through 5 of 5. I'm going to walk through this. He says, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. A couple of things. This word tent in Greek is not the common word for tent. You know, the structures that Paul built even as a tent maker. Uh, He's not talking about that. It's talking about uh, our bodies. There was a word that was used as tent, but different. So we do this in English too. It sounds confusing, but let's say that I use the phrase bag of bones, right, to to refer to my body, right? That's a weird phrase, but sometimes we use it. Oh, this old bag of bones. We don't actually mean we're carrying around a bag of bones. We understand that. So it's not the same thing, but similarly, there was a saying, and Paul would say something like that. He's referring to our physical body in this moment when he says tent. Well, the reason he does that is because he wants to draw a comparison. And so what he says is, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that is our bodies right now. He's talking about your body that you're living in right now, your tent, your earthly home. He says that's a house, what we're waiting for is a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's contrasting earthly or transient and eternal. He's talking about a tent. You think about when you sleep in a tent when you go camping. You you wouldn't want that to be your ultimate dwelling place, would you? I mean, think about all the things uh, that don't go well in a tent, right? It might not be waterproof. uh, A wind could come and blow it down. But would you much not rather choose a building that's secure? A mansion built built with stones, built with something that the wind just can't blow down. That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying the resurrected body we have is so much more than the body we have now that it's like a building like this versus a tent that you might go camping in. And then he goes on to say, for in this tent, that is this body, this life, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Imagine, have you ever been in a tent and it's leaking or it's freezing cold and it was really exciting to go camping and in the middle of the night, you're like, I totally regret this decision. You know what this is like, right? You're thinking, why did I recreate my whole house that I pay money for to sleep outside? You think those thoughts when you're camping. Don't tell me you don't. Okay? Well, it's something like that. Paul is saying, we groan. We know what that's like in the cold, and the hurting, and the pain, in the middle of the night. We groan. But what do we long for? We long for something more secure. We long for heat. We long for a house. We long for something more sturdy. And Paul in verse three says, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Listen, what Paul wants us to make sure and what he wants the Corinthians to make sure is that even in his groaning and his longing for something more, he's not longing to be disembodied. To Paul, the Christian hope is not freedom from this world, ultimately. It's not ultimately freedom from this body. The Christian hope is to be further clothed, not unclothed, to, to have this body be swallowed up by the body that God is preparing for us, the body of the resurrection. In fact, Paul in Romans 8 says the same thing, and he wrote Romans just after, probably a year, year and a half after, he wrote this letter, something like that. And in Romans chapter 8, he has that beautiful passage of that our bodies, our bodies groan for their redemption. And surely he's talking about the resurrection. And so Paul wants people to understand in Corinth, he wants us to understand that the longing and pain that we feel is not going to be answered by simply an escape from this world, but by a being swallowed up by the future world. It's not simply an escape from this body that groans and is broken. It's getting a new body that will never die made without human hands. That is the Christian hope. And the way that we groan oftentimes is brought about by suffering. And that's what Paul's been talking about. If you look in verse 17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's preparing us. And then in verse 5, he says, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. And so we experience groaning and suffering just like Paul. Do we not? Paul's groaning and suffering has sharpened his longing for the resurrection, the very thing we're celebrating for today. Paul's longing and groaning has sharpened his uh, the longing for the resurrection. But for many of us, me included, my groaning and suffering often sidetracks my longing for the resurrection. It doesn't sharpen it at all. It sidetracks it. I become preoccupied with my afflictions. I become myopic and focused on them. And I think we all experience this, right? There's something about affliction, about pain, about longing that narrows our vision. But it's not simply affliction. It's not simply pain. It's not simply longing that does this. In fact, John Calvin and his Institutes of the Christian Religion, there's a small section. They actually pulled it out and they made it its own little book called A Little Book on the Christian Life. That's what it's called, A Little Book on the Christian Life. I would recommend it. And he's talking about how the how our life oftentimes sidetracks our view of the resurrection. It doesn't sharpen it. And, he, and he's saying this. I'm not gonna read it directly. I'm gonna walk through this uh, couple sentences. He says... For we all make our plans as if we're constructing immortality for ourselves in this world. And given the passage of tent and building, I really like that. It's like we, God's the one who's going to construct it, Paul says. But you and I, somehow we, we make our lives about constructing something here. Like this is immortality. And then he says, even when we, we go to a funeral or we walk among graves, sometimes When our eyes are confronted with the image of death, we eloquently philosophize on the emptiness of life, right? You can imagine this. You're talking with your friend. You're like, man, life's a vapor. I can't believe that happened to so and so. But sometimes it doesn't even do that. Sometimes we're so cynical, he says that, uh, he says, but even this doesn't always happen for these things often don't even make an impression on us. And then even when they do, our love of this wisdom is momentary. It vanishes as soon as we turn our backs and leave without a trace in our memory. How many funerals have you been to where you truly engaged? It was really m- meaningful, moving to you. And by the end of that day, you were completely back to your life unaffected. I'm not, that, that's a normal experience. And that's what Calvin is talking about. He's, he goes on to say, that, uh, that, that wisdom we get in the moment vanishes. He says, it's like applause in the theater of some pleasant show. You imagine a concert you've been to and people erupt in applause and it's so loud, it's deafening. You're thinking, there's no way I'm ever going to not hear this. And then it just fades away. That's what happens to us in the face of death so often. So he says, if in the meantime, someone interrupts us and just says, hey, you're gonna die. Remember that app we've talked about? It pops up multiple times a day. It's called, we croak. And she says, hey, you're going to die. He says, we'll admit it to be so, but we'll still give so little attention to it that the notion of our permanence remains firmly impressed in our minds. So when I'm thinking about resurrection, I'm thinking, how does this become concrete to me? Because I'll be honest with you, most of the time it's not. It's not really concrete to me. It's abstract Three weeks ago I mentioned an article in The Atlantic written by Tim Keller. The article is about his journey of last year being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And uh, in the article, early on, Tim says that he was was reading online about the statistics of people who have his type of cancer. And it wasn't good. And as he's reading, despair is starting to come over him and, and something catches his eye. It's a book on his coffee table. And it was his latest book, and here is the title, On Death. And this is what he said, in that moment, quote, I didn't dare open it to read what I had written. He goes on to say, death is an abstraction to us, something technically true but unimaginable as a personal reality. He says, as death, the last enemy became real to my heart. So death is becoming real to his heart. Death is becoming concrete, not abstract anymore to him. It's becoming concrete. And he says, as that was happening, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless, he said. He said, so he goes on to talk about how what did he engage in in order to make God's love and the future resurrection more and more concrete? And he talked about the almost the petals of of meditating, particularly on the Psalms. He says, in the Psalms, you see a God that is maddeningly complex. You see a God that we would never make up. And then a couple of petals that way, and then he would pedal with but then I would read more things on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus because I needed my heart, my heart to be convinced and I needed my mind to be convinced and I needed them to come together. And he talks about how he did this. Go read the article if you'd like more details, but he comes to this point where he says, this change was not an overnight revolution. As God's reality dawns more and more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for the lack of a better term, more heavenly minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. He said to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy, his wife, and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. we found that the simplest things from sun on the water and flowers in the vase to our own embrace and conversation, that they bring more joy than ever. And this has taken us by surprise. What happened? What happened? It all became more concrete to him. And when I read this, I think, how will it become more concrete to me? How will it become more concrete to us? And the answer is, ultimately, I don't know what the one thing will be, but I know what the invitation is for us today. I know the invitation of Easter Sunday is that the future world has broken into the present world. That the future resurrection actually happened in Jesus Christ. That that happened in history And that's what we're celebrating today. The new world breaks in in Jesus. It interrupted this world. And today, it can interrupt your world. The the resurrection of Jesus Christ can interrupt your world. It can interrupt my world. And the resurrection of Jesus is an opportunity to see more today, not less. I wonder, I've been asking myself this question this last week, preparing for this sermon. To make it concrete, I've been asking myself, what have I done today or what did I not do today that was only true because Jesus Christ is the risen Lord? What's the, o- what's the one thing that I did today or what's one thing I refrained from doing today which the only reason I did it or didn't do it was because Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. I began, I've begun asking myself that question prayerfully at different points in the day. And so listen, that's, that can be a heavy sermon right on Easter. I thought we were supposed to celebrate life, right? But here's my invitation, is that we are here to celebrate life. We're here to celebrate life, but, but we want to celebrate it concretely. Not simply an idea, but something that sinks down into our heart. And, and this is what I want to offer you today. Today, when you do your three times prayer in the common rhythm, maybe you can ask the Lord to lead you. And Lord, what, what are you calling me to do right now? that demonstrates dependence upon you as the risen Lord? What would it be like? What would he tell you to do? Would he tell you to to go knock on your neighbor's door and introduce yourself six feet, of course, apart? What What would he tell you to do so that new life in Jesus becomes more concrete, not so abstract? Maybe less thinking and more talking, more loving, and so what have I done today that I only would have done because Jesus is risen and Lord? We're set free to live this life. What, the song we're about to sing right now is, is, is going to be a celebration. And so my prayer is that today when you go and you see this beautiful weather and we go mingle together that we wouldn't see less, but that we would see more. Let's pray. Father, only you, by your Spirit, can help us do this. Would you help us see more today? Would you help us love? Would you help us live? And would you help us lament? All because, Jesus, you are our risen Lord. Fill our hearts with peace and joy and concreteness of your love and our future hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.